over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley and a little bit different today for this particular teaching. Um, We had some audio trouble, you know, which happens from time to time. You have to restart your computer once in a while. Well, we had to restart a computer. <laughs> so I'm going to re-deliver this message, as it were, uh, just talking to you, not an audience at our church at Stonebridge or any other teaching venue. So just pretend you and I are sitting, you know, having coffee, and I'm talking at you. How's that? So today we're going to open the book of Ecclesiastes. So we are in the big book, the Cover to Cover series, and today we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'm calling it a gentle cynic, and we'll talk a little bit more about the title. Michael Eaton has written, Life in this world does not fundamentally change. Life in this world does not fundamentally change. He is a pastor, scholar, an Old Testament scholar. He has been a pastor of a multiracial church in South Africa. So I pay attention when a guy like that says, Life in this world does not fundamentally change. A casual student of history can find ample evidence that man's behavior, outlook, personality, his desires, his dreams, his problems are fundamentally the same today as a generation or more in the past. The humdrum routine can crowd out meaning. Men and women experience various stages of midlife crises. Homemakers, women who work outside the home, wonder if child care Mending life's tears, fixing meals, chauffeuring our kids around, school project, late night, and teenage emotional disasters. Will they ever end? Singles might wonder or second guess, where is that person? Or even just a lifelong friend on whom I can depend. Divorced or single parents may go from pillar to post, determined to find love or to press on as a single person. Too many young married couples deal with infertility. Couples with older children can drift apart, caring for the never-ending needs of small people, and those lives become parallel. Empty nesters can, quote, arrive, close quote, and find out that chapter to be hollow. People on a career track can hit a wall in times of distress, wonder, is it worth giving so much of my life to this company or organization? If you're old enough, you might remember the Tom's dispensing machine, the candy dispensing machines. You put money in and you pull a lever and something drops out. You ever feel like you're a Tom's dispensing machine? People come up, they put a buck and a half in the slot and pull it and they expect you to deliver. And yes, another cheery Michael Easley sermon. Soren Kierkegaard wrote, I saw that the meaning of life was to make a living. Its goal to become a counselor that the rich delight of love was to acquire a well-to-do girl, and the blessedness of friendship was to help each other in financial difficulties, that wisdom was whatever the majority assumed it to be, that enthusiasm was to give a speech, that courage 
was to risk being fined $10. That cordiality was to say, may it do good to you, after a meal. That piety was to go to communion once a year. This I saw, and I laughed. Well, why study the book of Ecclesiastes? And that is a valid question. Let me give you some overviews, and then we'll look at the text to some degree. First of all, it is overflowing with insight into the puzzling nature of life. It overflows with insight into the puzzling nature of life. Embracing the complexity of living a sinful people in a sinful world, where the book of Proverbs offers eternal observations and wisdom to pursue and live by, Ecclesiastes muses, it opines, it wonders about these things. It's a great study, by the way, for teens, for students, for younger men and women, because much of the puzzling nature of life hits us hard in the face in those formative years. Ecclesiastes is a message from a sage. I would suggest he is the second wisest person to ever live on the planet, and it would do well then to listen to and incorporate his message. Now, immediately from the start of the book, it presents us with a binary decision. Are you a pessimist or are you an optimist? Earl Nightingale believed that no one knew enough to be a pessimist. Pessimists are skeptical, cynical, critical. That way, of course, they're never disappointed when things don't turn out the way they'd like. Pessimism is well known in ancient literature. An Egyptian work that dates about 2300 B.C. was entitled, The Man Who Was Tired of Life. (laughs) He disputed whether it was worth living or was suicide the only logical act. If you went to college and university and you studied Par Lagerwitz or Albert Camus or uh, George Louis Borges or any existential author, you would understand and perhaps empathize with, you know, at what point is life worth persisting? One scholar describes Ecclesiastes as a rationalist, an agnostic, a skeptic, a pessimist, and a fatalist. Now, even that's depressing to me. James Crenshaw wrote, life is profitless, totally absurd. The oppressive message lies at the heart of the Bible's strangest book, Enjoy life if you can, advises the author, for old age will soon overtake you. And even as you enjoy, know that the world is meaningless. Virtue does not bring reward. The deity stands distant, abandoning humanity to chance and death. Koheleth, that's the name of the prophet who wrote it, Koheleth, the preacher, discerns no moral order at all. Humans cannot know God's disposition. This argument strikes at the foundation of the sage's universe. So those are pessimistic views of the book. Let's think about an optimistic perspective. Optimists view life positively, hopefully, confidently. They anticipate something good in the future. Those with optimistic glasses see the emphasis on the joy of life, the good things that we get, are given to enjoy, the pleasure and the portion that God gives. Yes, an optimist sees the dilemmas of life, but they focus on the blessing they taste, fleeting as it may be, rather than a skeptical, pessimistic view. In this way, Ecclesiastes defends the life of faith in a generous God by pointing to the grimness of the alternative, writes Crenshaw. Which are you? Are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? 
And your outlook on life is pretty quick to reveal, you know, are you hopeful or discouraged? Are you fatalistic or idealistic? So framing this book from either a pessimistic or an optimistic viewpoint, let me ask the question and or rather let me state the proposition that all scripture is relevant. Some books have a timeless nature about them, and I think Ecclesiastes fits that more so than other books. If it's our issues of our culture, our dilemmas, our time, our hopes, our dreams. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the book, it may surprise you. As a sidebar, I used to intensely dislike Ecclesiastes. I would read through the Bible with some of these reading programs, which, by the way, if you have not done that, we've got a link on one of our, on the website or social media, where Crossway Books provides about five different reading programs that you can download free of charge. Uh, I use one called Robert Murray McShane's Reading Guide, and you read through the Old Testament once, the New Testament twice, Psalms twice, and I, I loved to use it for years. But when I came to Ecclesiastes, I went kind of gritted my teeth and scratched my head and powered through it. Well, one of my professors, Dr. Howard Hendricks, would uh, often challenge us, and one of the things he did and I adopted was each year to take on a new project maybe a new study, a new book, a new subject that was challenging or maybe even intimidating and uh, make that a goal that year to dive into. So one year I said, all right, I'm going to study Ecclesiastes for at least a couple of months. That turned into a three-year study for me. I was stuck in Ecclesiastes in my devotions. I spent an hour every morning in the book, and since 1987 I have loved this book and returned to it many, many times. And I think I perhaps like you, might have a unique affinity to the book, and maybe, if not, this will goad you on in your own study. Let me make some overarching observations about Ecclesiastes. The title is enigmatic. The title Ecclesiastes is a cumbersome word. It's a Greek translation of a Hebrew title. The Hebrew word is koheleth, or kohelet, and it may be, and this is, it's, it's debated, we don't know, it may be the verbal root of a Hebrew word, kahal, which means the assembly of a congregation. So the noun then would be a congregation. This is a verbal use of a gathering. Luther found it fashionable to title it the preacher, and many writers and commentators took up that assignment, and it makes sense. This is the author Koheleth calling us together. Listen to verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So that word preacher is Koheleth, and he is the one speaking to us. Now, right at the beginning, note this is the son of David, the king of Jerusalem, Solomon. We're looking to him as the king, not Saul, but David. And this is the wisest son, Solomon, who ever lived. Although it is debated, I think it's clear in the text that he is the author. The message of Koheleth, following the title being a little bit enigmatic, uh, the book is too. Uh, there are many failed attempts to find a structure or form or even an outline to the book. One scholar lists 23 commentators who virtually abandoned the task of trying to find any coherence in the book. So to me that gives humor to the accomplishment of, you know, life's broken and fallen and messy and complicated and we're living in that situation. Well, can we find some indications of some sense of purpose 
And although I don't want to be bull dogmatic, I think there are some themes and terms that give us a lot of help. Historically, the theme of vanity, I think, has been overplayed. While obviously the preacher begins, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher, uh, it is a theme, it's not the theme. The author is beginning where many people find themselves in life. It's not working the way I wanted it to. It's not like I thought. I worked hard and it didn't work out. Uh, People make bad decisions. People hurt us. We go through injustices. So you can start out on a discouraging note, but I think he's recognizing a level playing field. You've heard me say this many, many times. We're broken creatures in a broken context. Fallen people on a fallen planet. Now, I'd embellish this a little bit to say Ecclesiastes is the absurdity of life apart from God. Because if we don't understand who the Lord Jesus Christ is, who Yahweh Elohim is for the Old Testament believer, if we don't understand this, then it's absurd. Roland Murphy writes, It is difficult to give an overall picture of the work. Kohelis thought is torturous, and the danger of selectivity on the part of the interpreter is ever-present. In other words, you be careful we don't over-read the book for what it's saying or not saying. Perhaps the, the best title, as I referred to, is Morris Jastrow's title, The Gentle Cynic. And I would add a subtitle, The Quandary and the Faithfulness. That there's a quandary to life, but we live faithfully in the midst of that quandary. Let me suggest six key words, and you might want to jot them down in the margin of your Bible or on a pad or on your tablet. Six key terms or words, and and just as a reminder, in Bible study, as well as in literature in general, uh, when you're reading something, you're always trying to find out what's the purpose of this article, this book, uh, what's this person after in writing this text. And one of the most common tools is looking for repetition, for restatement, uh, these major themes that bubble up in a person's writing. So these six key terms show up again and again in the book, and therefore it's worth our attention. The first, of course, is the word vanity or futility, depending on your English Bible. It occurs 37 times in the little book of Ecclesiastes. It can mean breath or vapor or futile or worthless or rational meaningless, incomprehensible. It's usually negative, but not always. Uh, It's absurd in the sense that it's incomprehensible. Skepticism with reference to the knowability of the world. How do we know this for sure? So that's a major theme of the book. Vanity, futility, breath, vapor, worthless, meaningless, and so forth. Secondly, the word profit or advantage. It is uh, used in Ecclesiastes as surplus or something left over. And interestingly, it's only used here. Life is of little profit or of profit. Third is the word portion, which means riches, intrinsic pleasure, something positive. But there is no certainty that you can get your portion or you can keep your portion. I think it's an important aspect when we think of prosperity theology that many pulpits around America and the globe unfortunately teach that if you do this then God will bless you and it doesn't always work that way Uh, the rewards may not be tangible they may be spiritual and even then we're not given a, a guarantee 
So when the writer talks about the portion of the riches and the intrinsic pleasure we get, we need to weigh that in the bigger portion of the book and scripture. So vanity is the first one. Second, profit or advantage. Third, portion. Fourth, toil. You get by on hard work. The word is what it sounds like. It's heavy. It's the fruits of labor. And generally, it's a negative term. If you've never baled hay, you should go bale hay one day of your life. Uh, you will pick up these so-called 75-pound rectangular bales and throw them from the ground onto the back of a flatbed truck. And the first 50 will be hard, and when the sun's going down and you're dragging it up your thigh, barely able to get it on the flatbed truck, you're sure they weigh 400 pounds. Um, there's nothing like baling hay to understand labor and toil. Uh, my father had a beautiful statement. He said, the reward of work is not the end of work, but the work itself. And I think too often we as Westerners think of, I can't wait till Friday. I can't wait for the weekend. I can't wait till I get done with work today and go home. Ecclesiastes will help us reframe that a bit, that it's hard, it's heavy, it's laborious, but there's goodness in that toil. So again, vanity and futility, number one. Number two, profit or advantage. Number three, portion. Number four, toil. Five, joy. And it's simply what it means. It's pleasure. We see it in Ecclesiastes in eating and drinking, the zest for life. But it's limited because of our destination. We're going to die. So this term is paradoxically tied to God who gives us joy as our portion, but we can't keep it, nor can we control it. And then finally, uh, six, wisdom. Wisdom occurs 52 times. Wisdom concentrates on the order of things. It concentrates on the profound sayings or profound sayings of a master. Sages went about trying to discover the order of life. And wisdom is the culprit at the same time. Not merely an unwelcome guest, but an eerie one. So those are six key terms. Vanity or futility. Secondly, profit or advantage. Third portion. Fourth toil. Fifth joy, sixth wisdom. Now let me give you three themes that we see. This would be under the sun. Under the sun. It occurs 29 times. It is the horizontal nature of living by faith while constrained to the flesh. One more time. The horizontal nature of living by faith while constrained by the flesh. Living under the sun. It seems to leave out God in the equation when we view life under the sun. In my Bible, I have U-T-S in the margin every time I see under the sun those 29 times. Another theme we see is striving after wind. That occurs 27 times in the book, and it's the only book you'll find it in the Bible. Striving after wind. Think about the futility of running after wind. And then finally, under heaven, and that occurs five times. So you kind of group these three themes together, under the sun, striving after wind and under heaven or this assortment of this horizontal life and how we live it apart from God. It's meaningless and yet we are constrained by the flesh to live that way. Well, let's look at verses 2 through 11. I'd like to read those and let me give you the title, if you will, the absurdity of trying to make sense of it all. The absurdity of trying to make sense of it all. Verse 2 of chapter 1. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. 
vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? There's that phrase, under the sun. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, See, this is new. Already it has existed for ages. There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also of latter things which will occur. There will be no remembrance among those who will come later still. So this is the absurdity of trying to make sense of it all. Verse 2, his emphatic declaration, everything is absurd. Five times in one stanza, he uses the word vanity or absurdity. All is literally the whole of earthly experience. Human efforts to make sense of it are frustrating. It's incomprehensible. And he's certainly skeptical that we cannot know the meaning. Now, just look at nature to see the absurdity to try to make sense of it all in verses 3 to 7. You do your work. What's the reward? It's just more work. Leupold writes, there's something tragic about having man, the noble creature, derived from earth, continually passing away while the earth the crude material from which he was made continues. We go back to Adam, A-D-M. The man was made from the ground and God breathes the life into Adam and he becomes a living being made in the image of God. But we die, we end up uh, maybe embalmed in a coffin and put in the ground and before long we're back to the earth from which we were dug. He compares this hubbub of activity with creation with three cycles, three examples. The repetitious cycle of the sun, the wind blowing, and the water's never-ending journey. And again, the ancients could observe these things. Sun goes up, sun goes down, the wind blows. The only thing constant about wind is that it changes, right? Water, of course, on its never-ending journey. Um, perhaps you're like me and you love the mountains, and there's nothing more spectacular than watching the snow melt come off mountain runs in massive waterfalls. Where does it come from? Rain. Where does it go? How come the sea never overflows? That's what the author is asking. So we look at nature and we see the absurdity to make sense of it all. Now, it can be wearisome because it cannot provide lasting satisfaction. The eye isn't satisfied nor the ear. I remember uh, just recently a friend of mine who's a little bit of an audiophile and I are working on my stereo at home, tweaking some adjustments, and we're playing some super high quality music over the system and going back and forth from one source to another. And the difference was unbelievable how much more you could, information you could hear. And yet, you know, our ears weren't satisfied. Because as soon as the song is over, the information's gone. The ear can't be satisfied. 
Uh, maybe you have a, a new picture, a new painting, a brand new car, a new home, a paint job, a redecorated room, new clothes. How long before you lose interest? I don't know who said it originally. Today's new car, tomorrow's trade-in, yesterday's junkyard. All that has been will be, all that will be has been. So we view it under the sun horizontally. God is left aside. There's no hope. History is a closed circuit. It's existential. Kohelis point. What is easy to view in nature is the same of man's efforts. It's absurd to try to make sense of it all apart from God. He who does not learn from history is destined to repeat itself. We've heard that again and again. Well, let me give you some practical shoe leather lessons on the book. Number one, in the quest for the good life, folly is not an option. Folly is condemned, writes Murphy. Again, in the quest for the good life, folly is not an option. Folly is condemned. To me, this is a guardian against living in sin and not caring and not growing up. It gives us the idea that a good life requires some idea of measurement. And there is a goodness of life. There is a thing to enjoy in life. And we should uh, desire a good life, not just live existentially. Secondly, wisdom, while very helpful, is not God. Wisdom, while very helpful, extraordinarily helpful, is not a God. Just because we approach something with wisdom or wisely is not a guarantee of success. Koheleth frequently applied wisdom. Indeed, he trusts in wisdom. You experience it. You observe it. You investigate it. You might say he made it a high art. But tradition and traditionalism can fail. Why do so many brilliant people end up in such a mess? So we have to be careful. Wisdom is not a God. Wisdom is helpful. We want to be wise men and women, but it's not a God. Third, kill the myth of the greener grass. Comparison is the kiss of death of gratitude. Koheleth's motivation was undoubtedly tied to his own view of pleasure, enjoyment, sex, wine, food. You read it. You see all of it in the book. Young men and women, it's a lie. It's a lie to compare yourself. Our friend Rachel Cruz, who wrote the book Love Your Life, Not Theirs, based on her observations of Pinterest and Instagram and how people compare their life to this other super edited photograph life of someone else. Live your life. Kill the myth of the greener grass. Uh, You sacrifice your marriage because it seems the problems are too great. You, You buy into the lie of greener pastures. You lose your virginity on a whim. You'll regret it all your life. We have this idea that we can sin when we're in deep pain or injustice because we seek pleasure for some reason, but the consequences of that are heavier than the lust of the moment. And so kill the myth of the greener grass. Stop comparing yourself to other people. Comparison is the kiss of death of gratitude. And finally, I would give you a positive lesson. Enjoy the stuff of life. Again, the writer I know there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to 
to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. Enjoy the supply. There is, the reformers often said they would eat this meal to the glory of God. We drink this to the glory of God. We enjoy this day to the glory of God. I think that's a very helpful perspective on Ecclesiastes. God gives you good things. You love your husband, love your wife, you love your kids. You love, it's a beautiful day outside. Uh, I love a good stormy night when the rain comes hard. And I say, boy, God's giving us a good rain for our lawns and, and for farmers. Uh, enjoy the stuff of life. Learn to see it, even though we're fallen people in a fallen context. Learn to see there are good things going. And it's a choice. And our walk with Christ, for God has so worked that men should fear him. If we look at life apart from God, it's indeed absurd. But if we look at the stuff of life with God, it takes on meaning and joy. And he can enable you and me to enjoy the good stuff of life. Ecclesian Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.